Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast. I'm Victoria Taft. And, you know, during the 2024 election year, we'll take a foray into some of the more interesting campaigns around the country. Joe Kent is a guy from some of my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Portland. I've spent my whole life on the West Coast, Mest Coast. Joe was born in Oregon, but now makes his home from Washington, across the river in Washington State from Portland and Oregon, where he was born. And um, he's been um, other places, too, like 11 deployments in Iraq, having accomplished that much in his career, and he's not even that old. He's a gold star husband, as you've probably remembered from his his interviews before on this podcast, as well as others. He lost his wife, Shannon, in um, Syria as she was with a another special forces outfit, and she was uh, there to aid, and she died because um, they didn't get out of there fast enough. And we'll talk about that as well, because there's a very sinister backstory to that. We've interviewed Joe Kent before in the Adult in the Room podcast, and he's as delightful now as he was then. He's running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District in Washington State. And uh, let's see, he now makes his home in Yakult, Washington, which is a lovely burg. It's rural and lovely. So viewers around the country probably recognize him because he's been on Tucker Carlson and he's been on Fox News and in other podcasts and, you know, huge presence. And I think, he, in fact, I don't know, I, I'll ask him, but is he more well-known nationally than he is locally? I don't know. It, it's possible. His Democrat opponent, who now serves in Congress, uh, is named Marie Glusenkamp. Perez, Perez, actually, Marie Glusenkamp Perez, and she's a product of Antifa. She went to Reed College and has vowed to become part of the Antifa congressional delegation, much like the squad has made itself a mouthpiece for all things woke and all things BLM. So uh, she's a disaster. She approves of disastrous policies. For example, she she thinks uh, having an open border is just fantastic. This is great. Uh, so they sh don't share that viewpoint, uh, she and Joe Kent. And uh, she's all for spending and spending and spending and spending. So the differences couldn't be more stark in this race. That's why we're having Joe Kent back. Welcome, Joe Kent, once again to the Adults in the Room podcast. It's great to see you again. Thanks so much for having me back. Boy, she sounds like a real, real beauty, doesn't she? <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean... Why would anyone in this day and age vote to 
approve someone who is literally Antifa to a congressional district. And everybody, I know people who live in your congressional district, if you win, it'll be yours uh, and the people's maybe finally, who moved out of Portland to Southwest Washington to get away from Antifa. And now she wants to bring Antifa. I mean, it's absurd. Can you talk to me about her? Sure. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, basically, it's interesting when, uh, you know, we conservatives say that someone is Antifa. Uh, I usually there's some sort of uh, hyperbole, you know, hyperbolic language there. However, we're using her own words. She said that she wants to make the Blue Dog Democrats, which are supposed to be the moderates in Congress, rural Antifa. Those are her words. Those aren't, you know, right wing talking points or something like that. That's what she said. And we also have evidence that her uh, business that she that's in Portland was supporting Antifa during the summer of 2020 and all that. But the, the way that she got into office was by basically saying, hey, I'm going to be a moderate. She said, look, I'm going to be an independent voice for Southwest Washington. She had all these great talking points. But then she got into Congress and basically she still says moderate almost every other word if she thinks people are listening, but that her voting record fully supports Joe Biden's agenda. It's almost identical to Nancy Pelosi and AOC's voting record. So uh, she tries to do this thing. A lot of Democrats do this where, where they will use moderate rhetoric and they'll, they'll be portrayed as a moderate. They'll take a performance vote here and there. But when it comes to the key things, it's destroying our country, like you pointed out, the out-of-control spending, the inflation, the wide-open southern border. I mean, she voted for the wide-open southern border, and then she had the audacity to come back to the district and say, well, no one stays awake at night because of the wide-open southern border, as people in our district are being killed by fentanyl, because unfortunately, we're right next door to Portland, and Washington State's a sanctuary state. So that's uh, that's where we're at with her. It's, uh, it's, it's a bad situation, but I think people are waking up. Yeah. I, I hope so. What? How does she uh, behave with you? Oh, you can go back and, and watch our debates. I mean, look, she's uh, not very confident, I, I, I don't think, in her ideology, because I don't think she wants to let the, her true self show. So during our debate, she was reading off note cards. Um, but in general, most of what she does is she just throws these insults at me or really any Republican and just says, these guys are white supremacists. These guys are extremists. These guys are weirdos. They believe in conspiracy theories. And I'm this this calm moderate. It's it's almost like a uh, psychological operation that she wages, you know, against the people in the district. So I, I'm, what we're doing is really just encouraging people to look at her voting record because politicians they can say whatever the heck they want almost, uh, but their voting records don't lie, you know. So and, and I also like to bring up, and you're seeing Democrats throughout the country do this too. Biden does it all the time. They name call and they try and do these ad hominem attacks because the last thing these guys want to do is talk about what they've done to the country. There's not a Democrat out there that can defend the border. They can't defend the inflation. They can't defend what they're doing to our kids in schools. So they automatically just have to throw out insults. It's it's almost like grade school once again. Well, you're you're a mega Republican. Blah! Right. Yeah. You're America first Republican. Uh, and so you what would you do with the border if you were in Congress that she's not doing? Well, shut it, shut it down. I mean, look, Congress has a lot of responsibilities, but if you look at you know the, the responsibilities that are enumerated in the Constitution, defending our country and managing the budget, that's really what Congress does, passing laws and all that. But Congress controls the purse strings. So from the, the position of Congress, I would say, hey, we need to pass H.R. 2, which the House passed with all Republican votes. My opponent voted against it. But that would give additional support to actually secure our border. I, I pray that we get Trump back in, in office so that we can actually have an executive branch that is dedicated to securing the border as well. But honestly, I, I would not fund anything else in our government until the border is secure. 
when we're under invasion, we've had 10 million illegals come in under Biden. And the, the biggest statistic, I think, is that we've had 118,000 Americans, our neighbors, our loved ones that have been killed by fentanyl that came across the wide open southern border. So I don't think anything in the federal government should give one penny until that border is secure and the fentanyl stops killing our citizens. Yeah, I just heard about two people who are the sons of well-known Americans who just died this week because of fentanyl. I mean, they think they're going to take a Percocet, and what happens is they get right. fentanyl and die. That's exactly it. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I, I go to events all, all the time. I'm always out chatting with people, and I, there's no event that I go to in the district where someone doesn't come up to me and tell me how the fentanyl crisis has personally affected their family, that they've lost a loved one. And these are people from every single walk of life. Doesn't matter what the income level is. There's folks that, you know, live that are very well off, upper middle class, and the, the exact same thing. Because like you said, a lot of this, it's people that think they're buying Oxycontin, a Percocet. It's really hit marijuana, the the illegal marijuana that's uh, out throughout the, the Southwest Washington and, and Oregon. A lot of that's being laced with fentanyl and it's killing people on the first time they use it. And so it's like this is a deliberate attack on our country by the Chinese Communist Party and Mexican drug cartels. And you've got one side of the aisle that refuses to address it. I mean, I, I think it's just absolutely disgraceful. I mean, it's frightening. And you have a couple of things, you know, moving parts going on here. First of all, you have literally divisions of of military age fighting men, fighting age, coming over the southern border, and they are not being stopped. And then you have, and then you have the cartels and the CCP. This is all CCP stuff. Um, and creating the fentanyl saying oh well, well we'll work on that we won't we won't send as much much over to the united states anymore well that's not going to work i mean because the precursor stuff's all bought in uh china mexico uh cartels create it or manufacture it maybe there's some chinese labs down there and that comes over the border on the backs of those millions of people who have come over the u.s border illegally i mean what is going on how would you characterize the southern border I mean, I, I would say that this, I mean, it, it gets called a crisis a lot. And I think that's only 50% accurate. A crisis is like your house accidentally catches on fire or an earthquake happens. Like this is a planned and deliberate operation that is being conducted by our government. It is an invasion of our country. So when, you know, the Republicans are impeaching Mayorkas right now, I think that's a good thing. I think Biden should be impeached for this too, because like when it comes to treason, I, I don't know a better way to define this. Usually we think of treason as, you know, someone sells a secret here to one of our enemies. This is even worse. The people that are charged with defending our border have said, not only are we going to leave the border wide open, we are going to participate and use U.S. taxpayer resources to fund a controlled flow from South America throughout the entire world into our country. And then once they're in our country, we're going to bust them to major urban centers throughout the entire nation. So I, I honestly, like when you when you say it all out loud, it's it's really hard to wrap your head around because four or five years ago, if you would have told me this is happening, I would have said there's no way that our entire executive branch would just get on board with this. But when you look at the full scope of what's happening, that's exactly what this is. This is a invasion of our nation facilitated by our, our leaders. I know it sounds sort of conspiracy theory. Uh, ist, but it it is happening. You can't deny it. It's clearly it's clearly happening. Why do you think it is? I think it's a cold blooded uh, power play by the Democrats. The Democrats want to pump as many people into this country as they possibly can. Then they want to bust them to key urban centers so that the next time that we do a head count, a census, and when we do censuses, that we don't check citizenship status. We just count heads based on that new head count. 
they can then create new legislative districts at the state and at the federal level. They will literally create new congressional districts. And it gets worse if you're out here on the West Coast, the whole West Coast and a lot of other states in the country, we're all mail out ballots. In Washington state, if you go to the DMV to receive a piece of identification, you will be registered to vote. No one will ask you if you're a legal voter or not. And so a ballot will then be created. We think, we estimate, and I think this is on the low end, that we've had 300,000 illegals come into Washington state in the last two years. So it, it's it's the Democrats, quite frankly, it's it's a pure power move. And I, I think they view the fentanyl as collateral damage. They don't care about that. They don't care about Americans dying because they're going to import new people that are going to give them more power and more control over the government. It's really just a diabolical power play. Yeah, California's almost lost uh, enough population to lose a second congressional seat. And uh, that what you're saying, they would gain that back with the additional population. I mean, obviously, the Americans have moved out. Some of the Americans have moved out, 70,000 plus. And, um, and excuse me, 70,000 more people moved out than moved, um, uh, yeah, moved out than moved in to California. So they are actually bumping up. If they get, what, 235,000 people? How many people are we up to for a congressional district now? It's, it's you know, a lot, but they, they could probably get that back. Yeah, it's supposed to represent somewhere between 750,000 and 800,000 Americans. But then when you look at voter participation, you're usually somewhere in the 200s, maybe the 300s. But you pointed out California, there's a couple of congressional seats down there that are controlled by Democrats. If you look at the number of people that vote in those districts, it's very suspicious. You're talking about people that are getting put into Congress by winning, you know, 100,000 votes, which is pretty crazy considering how many people they're supposed to represent. That to me speaks to, I know we have an issue of just, you know, people not voting, but that to me really just shows how, hey, look, they're counting heads in these places, but there's not actual registered voters. And then through ballot harvesting, they're able to then just get their candidates across the finish line. It's almost a performance election. It's very sad. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and uh, AOC was just a Nobody, and she beat the beat the Democrat, and um, he he was a no show. He basically, oh, I don't have to do anything. I'm going to get reelected. Um, guess what? He didn't get reelected. Are you are you in fear of um, some ballot uh, abnormal abnormalities this time around again? You look, Washington State has a, we were actually kind of the tip of the sphere. Washington went all mail out um, about 12 years ago. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get Republicans elected at the state level since then. So I, I do not have confidence in, in our elections here. I, I just simply don't. However, we've been able to get Republicans elected in my district. President Trump won it in 16 by about five points. Same thing in 2020. We've had Republican members of Congress before. With us, if we drive turnout in my last election, I lost by less than a percentage point to, to the incumbent that's in there right now. We had 100,000 Republicans that didn't show up and vote. They didn't cast ballots. And we had issues at the end. It was really close. It takes us two and a half weeks or so to count ballots here in Washington State. I don't like that, but that's just the way it is. They threw out some ballots because of signature verification, but it, it was close. We can beat the margin of any kind of error or cheating if we get all of the Republicans that, that share values with us to actually get out and participate in the process. You have been very vocal about what's going on internationally with respect to the United States involvement, Iran, what's happening. We've lost two Navy SEALs trying to board a ship that had Iranian weapons on board. We've lost three uh, American soldiers at a small base in Iraq. You've spent years in Iraq. Uh, Are we going to do in Iraq that which we did in Afghanistan? 
Yeah, I mean, Iraq has been an ongoing debacle. Everybody remembers when we went in there in 2003. It was all based on lies. We were told there was weapons of mass destruction, and then we spent the next eight years in Iraq bleeding and lost almost 5,000 Americans, just shy of 5,000 Americans, spent somewhere between two and $3 trillion. And then we had to go back in because the government in theory that we built almost crumbled when ISIS came across the border, which was another byproduct of our our blunders as well. So we had to go back in there. And then we had to arm a lot of the people who were trying to kill us during the Iraq war proper, these Shia Iranian-backed militias, because the Iraqi military basically crumbled. We had to do that in order to defeat ISIS. Um, so Iraq has been an ongoing, just drain, an absolute debacle. I pray that we don't lose any more soldiers there. We lost 13 on the way out of Afghanistan. That was completely and totally preventable. We do not need to bleed one more drop of blood in Iraq, Syria, or, or uh, the Jordan, that, that tri-border region there. Uh, but the problem is we're leaving our forces in these small outposts. When we lost those three soldiers, there had been 160 attacks since October 7th leading up to that event. So anyone should have seen this coming. And we've been throwing up the red flag for quite a while. And, you know, Biden said, hey, these were Iranian-backed militants operating out of Iraq and Syria. That's a really long, fancy way of saying this is the government of Iraq. And those were their forces that killed our troops. And we 100% fund the government of Iraq to the tune of several billion dollars a year. Our biggest embassy overseas is sitting in Baghdad, giving money to the militias that are killing American servicemen. So I, I, it's insanity. Yeah. It's infuriating. Um, yeah, it is. So you were a special operator over in Iraq. Uh, you for the army, your Green Beret, and you also did some, you were tasked out to the CIA to do some ops for them. Can you explain what it's like to see your efforts um, maybe perhaps be for naught? Yeah. You know, at this point, um, I, I it, it makes me mad. It makes me really furious because we've lost so many people. Like I said, almost 5,000 in Iraq, almost 3,000 in in Afghanistan. I lost my lay wife in, in, in Syria, countless friends that are buried in Section 60 of Arlington. Um, at this point for me though, it, it's like we knew it failed. We've got to stop living this lie and telling ourselves that like, Hey, this time we'll get, it. if we just stay there longer, if we just commit more, this time we'll get it right. It's literally the gamblers, gamblers fallacy. This is how people go bankrupt in Las Vegas. They think, well, Hey, this, this next one, it's going to be my time. I'm going to keep doing the same thing and I'm going to get lucky. Our, our country's stuck in this mode in the middle East. So I want us to really just be able to cut our losses and learn from our past mistakes and, and never let our country get sucked into endless wars and conflicts like this ever again, because this is all self-inflicted. We're seeing it right now. We're seeing a lot of the Washington, D.C. War Party, unfortunately, Republicans and Democrats that are saying, well, we just got three people killed. We have to retaliate. We have to go back. And now we're going to go to war if I ran. We're going to strike Tehran. It's like, well, stop, guys. Like, we messed up every war we've been involved in in the last 20 years. Explain to me how Iran is going to be any different and how that benefits the American people. Yeah, how would that benefit the American people? I remember Trump took out Soleimani, and and it was just like we didn't have to declare war. He Soleimani just wasn't there anymore. Exactly, and Soleimani was was soaked in the blood of Americans. The other guy that was killed with him, Abu Mahdi Mohandas, soaked in the blood of Americans. Those guys had it coming. That was a deliberate attack that we conducted that took out two key terrorist leaders. It was done in Baghdad, not in Iran itself. So we didn't have give the Iranians a reason to escalate the war further. And that really knocked the Iranians back on their heels. Something else that President Trump did very effectively, and this is why you really didn't see Iran causing too many problems under the Trump administration, is he cut off all their money. All of this began because Joe Biden came into office and decided that he was going to give the Iranians access to billions of dollars that we had frozen, and then he was going to continue to allow the government of Iraq to open up their economy 
to the Iranians. And then Biden, of course, he kills off U.S. energy independence, which gives Iran a massive advantage. And just last week, right before the, the three soldiers were killed, Biden announced that he was freezing U.S. liquid natural gas exports in exploratory drilling. And so he kills that off. That hurts the bottom line of Americans because now our prices are going up during the winter, right? But also, I want people to just go ahead and Google who else is a top LNG exporter? Well, wouldn't you know it? Iran, Qatar, and Russia. And we're told constantly, we need to go to war with Russia. We need to support Ukraine. We need to you know, go, be tough on the Iranians. It's like, well, then why are we giving them paycheck after paycheck? Trump basically made it so those guys didn't have enough money in their bank to conduct attacks against Americans or invade other countries. And that kept us out of war. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Um, what's it like? If I may, I know you're, you know, you know, button down. I'm a congressional candidate, but I got to ask, what is it like to be gung ho as a soldier, special operator? You go over there. I'm going to, you know, kill people and break things. And then turn around and go, I don't think this is working. I just totally do a 180. What was that like for you? It's hard to do. Uh, it, it, it's against human nature, uh, I think, to say like, hey, this thing that I invested deeply in, it it didn't work. It's easier. And I think it's our human nature to say like, you know, some things didn't go right. But, uh, you know, the, that wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of anything I did. I, I'm proud of my individual service. I'm proud of the missions you know, that uh, me and my comrades went on. Uh, so I, I think it's important for veterans to really separate those two things. Like you can be very, very proud of your service. You can be very proud of everybody who stepped forward to go defend our country, especially after 9-11, because we didn't really know. We didn't have the, the full truth and we were lied to a lot, unfortunately. Um, separate that and be proud of that. But then at the same time, do step back and reflect and ask the hard, uncomfortable questions like go to Section 60 of Arlington and, and tell the families and tell the guys that are laying there uh, forever, was it worth it? You know, what What did we actually accomplish in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and all these different places? And it's almost impossible to do. And so for me, it's just like, I, I've got to be honest. And I do feel like I, I have a responsibility. I feel like my generation of veterans has a responsibility to really speak out and say, look, we got lied to. This wasn't just because when I was younger, I, I at first thought like, okay, maybe our you know intelligence professionals, the guys back in DC, maybe they just didn't understand what was going on on the ground. And that's why they're making these really dumb decisions. That's what I thought for many years. That's why I went into working kind of in the intel field because I wanted to be able to give truth to power. But after a while, like the 10-year mark, I was like, oh, they actually don't care. The game is for us to stay over here and they make trillions and trillions of dollars. They line their pockets and they use us as cannon fodder. And you know, it's unfortunate because I heard Vietnam veterans say things like that. And I, I thought maybe these guys were just bitter. Like America would never really do that. Like Unfortunately, that's the default setting of the Washington, D.C. war machine. And so for me, it's just we've got to be sober and we've got to be rational uh, as much as it as much as it hurts. And, and, you know, usually real reflection actually does hurt. So that's why I think it's important for us to, to reflect and to speak out. You know, if they want to make their recruiting targets, all they have to do is not stop being stupid. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I t- right. We talked to Sam Faddis, who's a former CIA station chief in the Middle yeah. East, and uh, talked about, because I, I thought that, of course, that, of course, we all knew Iraq had WMD. I mean, certainly had uh, poisons that they used on their own people, the Kurds sure. and all that stuff. So we knew that. But Sam, Sam, so, he's talk, so Sam Faddis is, is the guy. He's... Mm-hmm. Did you ever work with him by any chance? I mean, he he went in actually, early. He, I did. Oh, I, I did. I worked with Sam, and Sam actually um, was my late wife's instructor in an intelligence course. So I actually knew Sam uh, when wow. we were both in Maryland, living there, and we were when I was still in the in the intelligence community um, when he was actually running for Congress. So yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep. Uh, good guy and great guy. Uh, ba- Basically, it was just like, yeah, I was the guy over there, sent over there to find out if there were WMD that were, you know, operational and that sort of thing. And and then on the next thing I know, we're getting word that we're going in because there's WMD in there. And they're all looking at each other going, uh, you know, we're the experts here and there ain't nothing here that we could put a finger on. So yeah. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. So lie, 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 lie. Yeah. Yeah, Sam. Sam wrote a a great book. It's on my bookshelf back there called Beyond Repair about the CIA and, and about a lot of those experiences. I, I think it's it's a short read and he writes it in a way that anyone can understand. I would highly recommend that book if you're wondering what the heck is wrong with our intelligence community. That's a that's a great place to start. Yeah, he wrote a piece or he gave a speech at uh, Hillsdale and uh, they they put it in there in Primus and and that's when I saw it and I went, oh, I got to get this guy on. He's talking sense. This is uh, pretty cool. So he was on just not too long ago. We also spoke with uh, Don Bentley and he's, uh, he's the, he was a, uh, he was like a night stalker guy um, in Afghanistan and was there. He was the guy who, t- who was sent to, to, to help the team that we lost uh, that out of which lone survivor came to be. And uh, he has written a book. He's um, it was under the imprimatur of um Tom Clancy, and now he's writing the Vince Flynn books. And but um, we were talking about his last book, which is the it was called Forgotten War. It was about Afghanistan, and he was just. I mean, he's a really mild mannered man. He was he was shaking. He was so upset about that war. I was shaking for him too. I what I I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm am I that naive? I just don't get it. Why did we do that? Why didn't we just leave it? You know, why didn't we just send in the special operators, you know, the, the CIA uh, paramilitary guys in Afghanistan, you know, kill the right people, break the right things and get the hell out. I just don't understand it. And the short the answer is there's no money in that. Uh, so like when, 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 we, when we initially sent troops in Afghanistan, like you said, it was CIA paramilitary guys because the CIA had historic relationships there at the Northern Alliance. They brought in some special operators. They brought in some guys who could talk to aircraft. And wouldn't you know it, I think before it was even uh, 2002, we had taken down the Taliban and we had Al-Qaeda proper on the run, but we were told, hey, stop, don't chase them into Pakistan. Pakistan, a country that still to this day, we give billions of dollars of foreign aid to. We literally watched Bin Laden and Zawahiri, the guys who planned 9-11, escape into Pakistan. And then the next thing you know, we're being told that, hey, we're going to actually stay and occupy Afghanistan, the new mission. It's not just go find the bad guys. It's build a government. And then within not even a year, a couple more months, they're like, oh, and by the way, we're going to have our finally our, our really big battle where we can use all of our tanks and we can get the big army involved because we're invading Iraq. you know. And they cooked up the WMD. They cooked up the links to Al-Qaeda and all that nonsense. And, and the rest is history. But really, I think the bottom line comes down to when you send in small teams, when you use things uh, in, in a very discreet manner, 
no one really gets paid based off that. There's a handful of guys, you know, at the at CIA headquarters or and special operations, you know, but there's not a lot of money in those guys calling in air airstrikes or, you know, using a couple of suitcases full of hundred dollar bills to bribe off warlords and to, and to chase down bad dudes. There's real, real money, not just in war, but in occupation. There is a ton of money. Cause the war, that's over, that's over like that. Like even when we went up against the, the Iraqi military, we took them down, we did the thunder run, boom, we were in Baghdad, the government fell. All the real money to be made by Dick Cheney, who was the vice president at the time, was with Kellogg, Brown, and Root. And then the exact same thing happened when uh, Obama came in, Biden comes in as the VP, and he's got his brother running Iraq reconstruction. So, the, I mean, the whole thing is just, it, it, it's incredibly corrupt. And I, me, as someone who spent so much time living in the third world, I always thought America was like this shining gem, like well, all this corruption stuff never happens. That's that's a third world thing. I think we're just told a lot of this to to keep the heat off of people in D.C. But when you're involved in it and you step back and look, it's like this really, oh, this whole thing is really being driven by how much money we can sink into these countries because Americans in Washington, D.C. are making a fortune off of this. And then they're buying off politicians, their contributions. Right. And there's not something 100 percent wrong with, you know, influencing politicians. You know, we can both agree that that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that when you have to stay there for years and years and years and, years and you have to rebuild everything, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. One of the things that you talk about or very seldom, I suppose, but now these days with Shannon, your wife or your wife, um, who, who was lost in Syria at the hands of ISIS and you know, terrorists and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, just, I mean, unbelievable. But what this this is something I think is who that is despicable to bring up by your opponent. And she alluded to in a story, well, I don't understand if he's all upset about what happened because obviously his wife's gone and she's she died, but he blames the deep state. And Trump was the president. Talk about that. I want you to tell that story. Yeah, I know sure. that so my, story. Yeah, my, my late wife was killed. A month after Trump gave the order for our troops to be pulled out of Syria. And I had a, a front row seat to all this. I was in the CIA at the time, so I could have access to all the, the information, all the wrangling back and forth. The second that Trump gave the order and said, hey, we're pulling our troops out because we, we accomplished our mission. We defeated the territorial caliphate. We took away all the ground that ISIS controls. And Trump realized that, hey, if we just stay here forever chasing down every last guy who said that he's part of ISIS... This is never going to end. And, you know, Trump ran on any of the endless wars. He, that's what he told the American people. That's what they hired him to do. And so he said, we're going to start pulling our troops back out of Syria. And I have front row seat to this. I, I saw this. I saw mid to senior level bureaucrats, people that were unelected. This wasn't Congress. This wasn't anybody that the American people got to vote on. This is folks in the intelligence community and the Department of Defense who basically said, no, more or not. We, we, we need to stay here. We need to stay and chase down every last ISIS guy, stay here to counter Iran, counter Russia all these grandiose strategies, but they were going against the commander in chief. And I was pretty frustrated by that because look, I, I came in the military, Bill Clinton was the president. I didn't join the army because I liked Bill Clinton. I joined the army because I wanted to serve the country. And I took an oath to support and defend the constitution. Whoever the commander in chief was, that was the guy in charge. He gave orders. I, I followed Obama's orders for eight years. Didn't like it, but I did. Trump came in and that whole tenure changed, that whole environment, that whole culture changed from the mid to senior levels. And when he gave that order, I, I saw that I was chatting with my wife because we both could talk. We both had access to classified systems. And I was like, I don't think you guys are going anywhere. I, I think that they're going to drag their feet. They're going to try and find a reason for you guys to stay here. And, and she was like, well, yeah, because we were supposed to, they were supposed to be pulled out of there Christmas Eve of 2018. Secretary of Defense Mattis resigns. 
uh, McGurk, Brett McGurk, who's back in the Biden administration, was the envoy for the Middle East. He publicly resigns. And it's not just their resignations. It's the culture. It's the trickle-down effect that has in the people that actually make things happen. Because then a lot of them are like, well, what are we doing? Like, the bosses just resigned. Everyone's saying we're not doing what the commander-in-chief's doing. And that resulted in them, my, my wife's unit and, and that task force, being left in Syria, where unfortunately troops remain to this day. And then a month later, her and three other Americans were killed you know, by a suicide bomber in Manbij, Syria. And, and so for me, it's like I... I saw firsthand that this was because people were actively working against the president of the United States. They were not carrying out the will of the American people that the president was trying to enact. And that, and that made me sick. That's a big reason why I stepped forward and started speaking out uh, on behalf of President Trump's foreign policy. And look, I mean, when Trump came into office, the world was on fire. ISIS had taken over several countries. So Trump did come in and he gave us a lot of authorities to go over there and to really strike against ISIS hard in a way that Obama didn't let us so there was an initial honeymoon period with President Trump of the national security state because he was letting us ply our trade in a way that Obama would not. Under Obama, we were like supposed to be deployed everywhere, getting shot at. We, we couldn't leave. We had to get shot at and lose people. We weren't allowed to fight back. Trump came in and was just like, hey, you guys do what you got to do, but I want these guys gone and destroyed. And we got it done really, really fast. So there was a brief honeymoon period there. But when Trump said, oh, I'm actually going to do all that stuff I said on the campaign trail, like we're not sitting here forever. That's when everything just changed on a dime. And that's when I, I I really started to realize, like, I didn't even know if it was called the deep state at that point. But I was like, man, this is not what I signed up for. And this is not the way it's supposed to work. And so that that makes me, you know, that, that still motivates me to this day that we need to have accountability uh, for what happened throughout the 20 years of the, the, the war on terror. The Afghan papers were released in 2019. And, and those basically just pointed out how commanders on the ground and civilian leaders had been lying about Afghanistan for years. It didn't get any coverage because it supported what Trump was saying. And Trump was trying to get us out of Afghanistan at the time as well. And so it, it completely got buried. And then people saw the effect of that under Biden with the Afghan withdrawal. But yeah, this is a, this is a very real, real issue that has cost people their lives that we, we have to fix. And you know where I heard about the Afghan papers? On Jack Carr's podcast. Like, yeah. How did I, I'm like, I'm a news. How did I miss yeah. that? You yeah, know? it was hardly covered. What? <laughs> yeah. It's just it was hardly, hardly covered. Huh. And at the time, just Trump was attempting to get us out. And he was using the Afghan papers to say, like, look, this is why I don't trust these guys. You guys say I don't trust the experts, but here's the experts. They've been lying. This is as damning as the Pentagon papers during the Vietnam War. And then next thing you know, the national security state cooks up that nonsense that there's been Russian bounties put on the heads of American soldiers. And if Trump pulls out, that's going to like benefit Vladimir Putin. This is the same time when all the Russian collusion nonsense was going on. And then we find out like a year later, they completely lied about that. The media that ran it, they knew it was all a lie. And then Congress acted and they took away Trump's ability. They froze the funds that Trump was going to use for the withdrawal. We left our troops in Afghanistan and Biden then extended the deal that Trump had cut with the Taliban. We were supposed to be out in May of uh, of 21. That was the deal that we struck with the Taliban. Yeah, Taliban's bad guys, but that was the deal we struck with them. Americans weren't dying before then. That's when the Taliban started their offensive to take back the entire country. So all of those deaths, those those losses on at the end there in Afghanistan, those 13, those 13 troops that we lost completely totally avoidable. And we would have had the same outcome. We just would have ended up leaving, but we would have done it actually on our terms, but not in a defeat like Biden handed us. Well, and the other thing is, is that I can't recall the guy's name, but he was some high up uh, Pentagon guy, I guess, or maybe it was State Department. They ignored. He, he was gloating in the newspaper. He was gloating. 
about how they lied to President Trump about pulling people out of Syria and how we just sort of, well, you know, we just dragged our feet a little bit and we, you know, just moved people around. And I mean, and then that was so reminiscent of what had happened at the beginning of uh, Trump's, well, right after he was elected, and all of these organizations, these these uh, people in the different EPA, I don't know if the, if the DOJ people did it, but they obviously have followed through on it, where they said they were going to resist President Trump, and it was it was absolute outright. Uh, what do you call that? I refuse to do anything President Trump tells me to do. It was just outrageous. Yeah, it's basically a soft coup. Yeah. I mean, it, it's when, when the military, when the government apparatus, in particular, the military, powerful organizations like the intelligence community and the military says they're not going to carry out the orders of the commander in chief, especially when we actually have people deployed overseas at, at war. I mean, that's nothing short of treason. That's nothing short of a coup. I, I don't really care what people say. I mean, that's exactly what that is. And like you said, I mean, there was senior diplomats that were bragging about lying to the president about troop numbers in Syria. And, and, and this guy got a, he got a book. These people get book deals for this afterwards and they're completely and totally rewarded. That's just been the culture that's been created. So it's a uh, raining in the, the, the deep state, the administrative state, whatever you want to call it, but unelected bureaucrats is something I, I don't know how Democrats fell in love suddenly with unelected bureaucrats. Cause this used to be something that, that Democrats back in like you know, the back in this like JFK and Frank Church, there was a lot of Democrats who spoke out about these types of things. But now it just seems like they've been completely and totally captured by the so-called, you know, experts or whatever. And they, the, these are the people that the American people have no idea who they are. We don't get to vote on them, but somehow they're supposed to run every aspect of our country. It's insanity. Yeah, we'll see what happens in the SCOTUS with the Chevron deference cases that are there. And we should be hearing, well... Not not too awfully far away. And uh, I hope that it goes in the right way because that's pretty absurd too. Iran, what's happening with Iran? I mean, are we at a war with Iran? Have we always been in a war with Iran? When we were in Iraq, we were at war with Iran. I mean, why don't they declare war on us or something if... Yeah. I mean, Iran's been at war basically with, with the U.S. since 1979, since they, they took the hostages in, in Iraq after the revolution the 80s, there was lots of Iranian aggression against Americans, the Beirut bombing famously. Um, but then, look, we really handed Iran we handed Iran the opportunity to continue to attack us. We invaded Iraq. We invaded Afghanistan. Iran had deep proxy networks, especially in Iraq, because Saddam Hussein, as bad of a guy as he was, he did keep Iran in check. And so Iran had a lot of insurgents that they were running in, inside of Iraq. They had these networks pre-established. So we came in, we took out Saddam. Iran's like, well, we don't want America next door to us, which just kind of makes sense. Um, so they funded a good section of the insurgency against the U.S. And then we were foolish enough to listen to a bunch of Iranian dissidents who told us how to staff the new government of Iraq that we were propping up. And these people all work lock, stock, and barrel for Iran. And now we're in two decades of funding this government that Iran completely controls. They use it to circumvent sanctions. So Iran's been at war with us for a very long time, but I, I personally think that America is a powerful enough nation and we are far away enough from the Middle East and we don't need Middle Eastern oil that we could basically say, hey, you can be at war with us all you want, but we don't have to play by your game. The big mistake that we make is we 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 attempt to fight the enemy on their own battlefield. We go right next door and then we put our troops in these locations where their proxies can easily reach them. We have the ability to project force like no other country, so we don't need to actually have troops on the ground to strike at Iran if Iran starts misbehaving. 
but we leave our troops there so that they can fight with their most lethal weapons, which are their proxies. And then we also fund their proxies. So we've made major mistakes here. And again, I really got to point out to people, as confusing as the Middle East gets, just remember that the Middle East was calm under President Trump because he was using diplomacy. He was using our economic leverage. We were a net exporter of energy. We were taking away from the bottom line of Iran, max pressure sanctions. That was huge. The Abraham Accords too. The Iranians are, are very, very smart. The Abraham Accords did something that was unprecedented. Trump went in there with Jared Kushner and said, hey, look, guys, you know, Israelis, Palestinians, Gulf Arabs, we know we're not going to agree on Palestine. Let's not talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about what we agree on. We agree Iran is a threat. Let's create a security alliance based on all of our common concern that Iran is an existential threat to all of us. And boom, we had peace throughout the region. Iran was isolated. The second Saudi Biden Arabia comes was in, ready to, to sign on. And right. Yeah. Trump was gone. Yep. Yeah, I, I, Biden comes in, gives Iran a ton of money. The next thing Iran does, and this is very, very smart. This is why Iran is deadly smart. They said, okay, we've got a bunch of money in our pockets. How are we going to spend it? They juice Hamas with a ton of cash. And next thing you know, Hamas conducts the October 7th, which basically backs Israel into a corner. Now, Israel's got to respond. We got a war in Gaza. And so this Palestine issue is back front and center on the Arab streets. So now all the Arab countries that were part of the Abraham Accords these guys are worried about getting an Arab Spring if they don't support the Palestinian cause because of the will of their people. And so now Iran has been able in very short order to completely upset the the, the steady balance of power and the calm that we had in the region. And that's all because Biden decided to fund Iran. Yeah, you let them have that stupid money back that we've held on for years and years. I have a question. Now, I haven't delved too deeply in this, but I have my suspicions. And it's this... this uh, uh, drone attack. Is that similar to the drone that they got a hold of? Uh, we we lost a drone and the Iran took it and they just replicated it. D was this the same kind of deal? Is that why our systems couldn't detect it was a, a you know, a bad actor coming in? I, that's safe to say. I don't know for sure, but you're, you're right to point that out. I think people have forgotten a couple of years ago, we had a drone that accidentally crashed on the Afghan-Iran border and the Iranians were smart and they snatched it up and I'm sure they did some reverse engineering. These are clever people. Um, but another big mistake we've made, like I said, uh, we've funded the Iraqi government. We've given the Iraqi government a ton of advanced military equipment and we've trained them on using it. I, the Iraqi government, which is manned by people controlled by Iran, these, Shia black, ba these Iranian backed Shia militias, they're part of the Iraqi security forces that we had to use against ISIS. We've given these guys some degree of drone technology. So even if they don't have the exact same drones we have, they have American-made drones, and they know our tactics, techniques, and procedures because we trained them. When I was in Baghdad in uh, 2016, a big issue was that we had the big M1 Abrams tanks, the most advanced battle tanks uh, in, in the world, and we gave them to the Iraqi army, and the Iraqi army immediately handed them over to Qatab al-Hezbollah. And they took them and they took them to a Qatab al-Hezbollah base. And, you know, the ambassador went and he shook his finger a little bit at the, at the Iraqis. And the Iraqis said, oh, yeah, OK, well, we'll, we'll try and find them, boss. And said, but we continued to give these guys advanced weaponry. It's the same thing with the drone. So I, I think it's completely feasible that either the Iranians were able to mimic the drone they captured. But I also think, look, these guys know our, our procedures. So they watched our bases because they've been watching these bases for years. They attacked it 159 times ahead of that. So they knew exactly what our defenses were. And somebody was just like, hey, why don't we take one of our drones the Americans gave us, load it up with bombs, and fly it in behind one of their drones? Why not try it? And they tried it, and it worked. I mean, it's a great case study. And like, look, if you stay in these places, the burden is on you to be lucky every single day, and the enemy only has to be lucky once. 
did you just flash back to 241 Marines dying in Lebanon? All those 1983. I know I did when I heard that. They're asleep. I mean, yeah. And, and people are saying that, like, if, if we leave immediately, it's going to be the end of the world, and we'll never be respected again. Reagan pulled our troops out after that, and that was the right that was the right thing to do. Uh, I, so that's why I, I fully advocate for like, hey, pull our troops out, get get them out of the out of the range of the Iranians. Let the Iranians go do a victory lap and say, oh yeah, we kicked the Americans out. That's fine. Once we get our troops out, then we can strike their proxies and their their Quds Force officers with impunity in Iraq and Syria once they can't reach us. Um, I know you. I've uh, taken a lot of your time, but I just I have to ask as long as we're talking this kind of stuff. The uh, October 7th attack, and we find out that some UN officials are part of the in the terrorists. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's uh, it, if you if you follow if you look at the UN and you look at the different branches of the UN, in particular, a lot of their international organizations. This is par for the course with these guys. I'm glad people are paying attention uh, in in the, in terms of the support to Hamas that these UN organizations gave. However, this is what the UN does, and who funds the UN? We fund the UN. This is U.S. taxpayer dollars that went to participate in the October seventh attacks. And then that's not the end of it. I mean, look, we're funding a lot of UN programs down in South America that are part of the controlled flow of illegal immigrants coming into our country. The UN is an absolute joke. I mean, the, the UN takes Iran and China and they put them on the Security Council and they they have you know uh, philosophical discussions about women's rights and these types of things. It, but we're paying for all of this, and the vast majority of that money is unaccountable. It finds its way into the hands of bad actors. So, I, I mean, if I were in Congress, I would say, look, let's defund and evict the UN tomorrow. Like, that is billions of dollars. We can save the taxpayers and and not fund this nonsense. So, it's tragic what happened and that, that the UN supported the 7 October attack and we're working directly with Hamas, but I'm glad people are paying attention to it and they need to start digging deeper because- the UN. This is this is not a uh, a bug. This is a future a feature of the UN system. That what is it UNRWA or something? Uh, I think is the acronym. What how you pronounce it? And Trump cut them off because I think I think I'm pretty sure Kushner said yeah, these guys are bad actors. And guess what? Biden starts refunding them and October seventh. Awesome. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, cartels at the border. They are running the border, right? 100%. Yeah. And, and look, this is, I mean, President Trump wanted to build the wall. I think we still need to actually physically build the wall, get the military down there to be our physical security. Why Why are we losing Navy SEALs defending the Red Sea? Why are we losing soldiers defending Iraq and Jordan's border? Our military should be on our border. But even though Trump was stored in building the wall, Trump used economic pressure. He went to Mexico and he said, okay, you guys are going to stop this flow of drugs. You're going to stop the flow of migrants coming into our country, where I'm going to tariff everything coming out of Mexico at 30%, and I'm going to stop all payments for foreign aid. And wouldn't you know it, it made the Mexicans then were just like, okay, well, we don't like this, but you know what? We're, we're not going to continue to allow these caravans to advance towards the border. So I, I think that's a big piece of leverage that we have is, is, is saying to Mexico, look, you guys are our trading partners. You're our neighbors. You, We, we want to be good neighbors. We want to trade with you guys. But if this continues, we are going to cut you guys off lock, stock, and barrel. And then I think if we secure our border, we have enough physical security in terms of a wall, in terms of our military. I do believe we could go to the Mexicans and say, the Mexican government, and say, look, we'll help you with the drug cartels. I, I don't think we need to do a full invasion or anything like that. I think with limited special operations, intelligence support, those types of things, I think the Mexican government's more than capable of actually going and taking out the cartels. Um, so I, I think this problem... It, 
it's going to be bloody. It's not going to be easy in some cases because the Mexican drug cartels are essentially like their own little narco state and they're very well armed. Um, but this is like, talk about existential threats. Like, look, I'm against the starting new wars all over the planet, but if we're going to fight a war anywhere on our Southern border, defending American citizens, like that's the place to do it. I mean, oh my God. I mean, I don't think people understand that fully. I really don't. Forget forget for a moment the uh, fifteen to 20,000 or more people coming over the border a day. There are the cartels that have some of the same technology that our military do. And I don't know. I don't know what the Border Patrol has. I don't know what DHS has. I'm sure that they may have uh, stuff that rivals that which the cartels have or our own military. But doggone it, man, that is some serious shit going on there. And we really need to be paying some attention to that. And uh and this is this is not funny. I mean, it's not nothing that you've got the cartels literally yep. operating down there yep. at yeah. our border and operating inside the U.S. In. too. Yeah, and operating oh, yeah. In, the, in America. I mean, because they're making big money on the fentanyl, and so like when Trump says like we need mass deportations and MSNBC freaks out, like no, we we need the FBI to I don't know stop going after people protesting in abortion clinics and you know grandmothers yeah. from January sixth. And like start running down members of the Mexican drug cartel and all the other terrorist organizations that have infiltrated their country. Or the question's got to be like, what do we even have an FBI for at this point? But we've got real threats here because the second that we start going after the Mexican drug cartels or cutting into their bottom line, they're going to start conducting operations here in America. And and it's going to be very, very ugly. Like that's a, a massive national security threat that I think we can barely see the tip of that iceberg on. Yeah, I know that Chris Ray says he's very concerned about it, but I notice he's not doing anything about it. Yeah, there's always lots of concern. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of concern, hand-wringing. And oh, by the way, he gets a new FBI headquarters. I mean- Of course, right. Yeah. Billions of dollars we're going to spend on that as well. And and again, this is a place where Congress could actually, I think, have a lot of effect and just say, look, uh, if you don't show us that you're actively deporting people, if you don't show us that you're actively tracking down the people that are bringing fentanyl into our country, if you don't show us that you're tracking down these terrorists that we know are here- we're going to stop funding you and you're going to report to us every single week and show us your progress and you're going to show us where every single penny goes or we're going to give it to a, a law enforcement agency or constitutional sheriffs or somebody that actually will. So this is this is where Congress, I think, is is really, really powerful and key if they choose to act. Hope you're there in the next election, Joe Kent. He's running in Thank Washington's you. third congressional district and he's running against a woman who's uh, said out loud that she's Antifa. So, Okay. Uh, there's a very stark difference. You got a guy who believes in America, likes likes the country, he'd like to see it even better, see it even better. And then you've got somebody who's a sworn enemy of the way the United States has been and is now, and wants nothing more than to fundamentally transform it and uh, devolve it. Unbelievable. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die 
by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.